Good morning, New Life. Uh, my name is Will. I am uh, one of the pastors here, so it's a joy to give you God's Word uh, if you're visiting with us. You know, thanks for giving your time and worshiping with us. Stick around. There's a time of fellowship and food, and it's probably a more personal way to get to know one another. And if you're visiting with us, we recently began a new series called Encounters with Jesus. And what we're trying to do in this series is to look at various encounters of people in the gospel and to see when they meet Jesus, how does it change them? How does it transform them? And how do their lives change in light of the fact that they met this guy named Jesus? And so we want to consider that today as we look at Matthew chapter 10. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. This is God's word. I pray that your hearts and your minds will be open uh, to hearing the gospel today. Starting with verse 1, it says this, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as he goes, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor or copper for your belts, no bag for your money, or two, eunuch, two tunics, or sandals or a staff, for the labor deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace, be, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And this is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, we've kicked off what we call our ministry year in the, the month of uh, September, where leadership in the church feel that God by His Spirit is leading us to a spiritual focus of understanding what does it mean to be called to Christ and then pushed out and called to serve our neighbor and one another. And that's why we look at this series, Encounters with Jesus, and as we continue along to look at various people who meet Jesus and are changed and transformed by him, what you see here as Jesus calls and establishes the 12 disciples is that when he calls you and I together to him, he calls us to one another. And that's a very simple paradigm, because when Jesus calls people to himself, he calls people to each other in a community and then he sends them out to serve one another. So we have to think and contemplate that a little bit. If you're really called to Jesus, if you know him deeply, you're called to worship him, to know him. And that means you're also called to one another, and you're also called to be sent out to serve the other. And so I wanted to discuss that with you, to take a look. What does that mean for you here today? To dialogue a little bit about this. And when you look at what Jesus does as he begins to send out the 12, there's three simple things that we look at in this passage. One, he calls disciples to himself. Secondly, he names the disciples. And then thirdly, he sends out the disciples. Three simple things. 
He gathers disciples, he identifies the disciples, and he pushes his disciples out. He calls them to himself, he names them, and then he sends them out. So let's look at this first. The most important part probably is the fact that Jesus is the one who calls disciples to himself. Verse 1 really quickly in the beginning says this, and he called to him his 12 disciples. Now that number 12 is something unique because if you know the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel. That was the people of God. They were the 12 sons of Jacob. And what Jesus in the New Testament is doing is saying that because I've came onto the scene, I'm redefining and re-evaluating and re-establishing who the people of God are. It used to be 12 tribes of Israel. Now it's going to be Israel, Jewish people, but expanded in the 12 apostles or disciples here. But the first point to notice is that Jesus calls disciples to himself. And you may be thinking, that's not that important, but it's actually foundational. This wasn't the first time Jesus called the disciples. He didn't make the disciples in this moment. They were already walking with him. They were learning with him. They were asking him questions. They were eating and establishing the relationship with him. So in verse 1, they weren't made disciples here. In fact, they've already spent a lot of time with Jesus at this point. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, if you ever read this, you meet this guy named Jesus in chapters 1 to 4. You learn from Jesus in chapters 5 to 7. You watch Jesus perform miracles in chapters 8 to 9. And then in chapters 10, he commissions them out. So the disciples have already been fellowshipping and walking and being with Jesus this entire time. But in verse 1, he finally and formally establishes them as the twelve the new community of God's people. He had already called the disciples to himself way back in the early chapters of Matthew. These men had been with him for months. Now they, they talk with him. They engage with him. They're called to be with him. They follow him. They learn from him. They're actually students of him because the word disciple literally means a learner, a student. He taught them. They learned from him. They were discipled by him. He was their discipler. And so before they went out to teach and to help people, they first sat down to sit at the feet of Jesus, their master. They developed and cultivated a relationship. They learned at his feet. They walked with him. They talked with him. They had a relationship with him. They had an intimacy with him. They were known by him, and they sought to know Jesus more. Now, Matthew Henry has once said this, the best preparation for the work of the ministry is acquaintance and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here, that the disciples were with Jesus and they fellowshiped with him. Even in the Gospel of John, it says that when the disciples, when they were walking around and people would see the guys who were walking with Jesus, in John it said that they perceived that these men had been with Jesus. And then even in the Gospel of Mark, in the same passage where Jesus calls the twelve to be his disciples, Mark is a little bit more emphatic and he says, I called the disciples so that they could be with me. So the most important and fundamental thing that you have to do is to be able to be called to Jesus to spend time with him. John says the disciples had this flavor in which people knew they spent time with Jesus. Mark says the whole reason that Jesus calls the 12 is for the main purpose so that they spend time with Jesus. And that's what we see here in the Gospel of Matthew. He called them 12, but before in the first nine chapters, the disciples we're learning and they're wrestling and they're engaging and talking with Jesus. So the simple question, friends, first, before you ever think, how can I serve the church? Just ask yourself for a moment, 
do I spend time with Jesus? Now, have you talked with him? Do you pray to Jesus? Do you read the Bible? Do you go to community groups? Do you commit to discipleship group? How do you commune or talk with Jesus? Because if all you think about is serving Jesus rather than spending time with him, you're missing one of the most fundamental points to spend time with him and to pray. Now, even before at the end of chapter 9, there's that famous passage if you've grown up in the church, and Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He's saying, look at all, all the food out there, all the people that we need to evangelize and to reap the benefit. But he says, there's not many farmers, there's not many workers. And you and I, being sort of more modern corporate type people, are thinking, well, there's a lot of work out there, but there's not that many servants. And we think the first thing we got to do is try to enlist people like the army does, where we better start activating our LinkedIn account and really send and blast the message out there and post a job description over on all our social media. We think we have to go into Indeed and look at this job description and be able to spread the word around because the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. But you know what Jesus does? He says, the harvest is plentiful. We need a lot of workers. And he says, you know the first thing you got to do? At the end of chapter 9, he says, pray earnestly. You got to spend time with Jesus before you begin to serve our Lord and Savior. The simple application, friends, is if we want to... If you want to serve Jesus well, then you've got to be really good at knowing who he is and being known by him. We must be his disciples. We must fellowship with the Lord to learn how the gospel impacts every part of your life. And it starts very simply. Yeah, be gung-ho about it. Be vigilant and excited about serving. But you'll never serve well unless you know how to sit at the feet of Jesus well. Kevin DeYoung has written a section in his book, Crazy Busy, and he talks about Luke chapter 10, and he gives this helpful insight. He says, Luke chapter 10 has a lot of ministry and a lot of serving, and he highlights two of these. He says, in Luke chapter 10, there's the first, first mission trip, a short-term mission trip. Jesus sends out the 72, two by two, two by two. You know, I don't know where they're going, somewhere in you know, Galilee, somewhere in that area, two by two. And when the disciples come back and they give a report of their short-term missions, it was probably the most successful mission trip ever in the history of the world because after they went out two by two, they come back, and in verse 18 of Luke 10, it says they saw Satan fall like lightning. That's an amazing, fruitful, successful mission trip. And then later in the chapter, there's a story of the Good Samaritan, and he gives a clinic on what it means to be merciful, to be gracious and loving and sacrificial. And how do you love your enemies? No, your ethnic enemies, your socioeconomic status, obviously opposed to you, enemy. How do you love them? How do you sacrifice and be gracious to them? So he gives you a description in Luke 10 of the greatest short-term mission trip. And then he says, I'm giving you the best clear lesson in this parable of the Good Samaritan. And finally, at that chapter, then he talks about a real story between two sisters, Martha and Mary, and Jesus comes into the house. Martha is all of a sudden serving, and she's serving, she's serving, and she's really busy. What does Mary do? She sits at the table, and she listens, and she studies with Jesus and learns from him. And then Martha gets upset, but then Jesus affirms what Mary does by sitting with Jesus at his feet, and he says, you're working, you're busy, Martha, but you got to spend time with me. So what's the point? The point is this. You could have the most successful short-term mission trip you could vision cast and catapult the most powerful mercy ministry. But if you do all that serving and in all that ministry, but you never sit at Jesus' feet, 
you're missing the main point of what this life is called Christianity. There's a difference between serving Jesus and working for Jesus. There's a difference between being around Jesus and actually following Jesus. There's a difference between singing about Jesus and worshiping and singing for Jesus. And the first point in what Jesus says, I'm calling disciples to myself. He said, we have to be with him and learn how to cultivate that relationship. Talk to him and walk with him. Let him know your stuff, the skeletons in your closet. Reveal your sins. Confess your inadequacies and your brokenness and failures. Find your identity in him. Then and only then will you be able to serve him well. And that leads us secondly. He not only calls disciples to himself, but then we also see that Jesus identifies them. He grounds their identity. He gives them a sense of self-worth because he names them. That's what we see. Why are names so important? You know, every gospel talks about naming the disciples. Well, back in that culture, it was important because names conveyed the very essence of who you are. It is about your identity. So the more titles you had, the more names you had, then in some ways, the more important you were. You know, you're thinking, well, that's probably... You know, archaic New Testament people, but you and I are the same. You know, we work like similarly in a New Testament or rather in a modern day culture. Back then, more titles and names meant you were more important. Today, it's sort of similar, isn't it? The more titles, the more degrees. You know, he said this plenty of times, the more acronyms, the more degrees that are on your business card, we feel a little bit better about ourselves. We think we're a little bit more important than ourselves, that about ourselves that we think. So we can actually relate to this. Names convey that sense of importance. They had meaning. The meaning oftentimes would define you as a person. That's why in the New Testament and Old, they always talk about, hey, here's the son of this father because your family lineage was really important. Names were really powerful. And so you're thinking, well, maybe that's still back then, not exactly like the culture of today. But if you push forward a little bit more, in different cultures, names conveyed a sense of family pride and industry and your economic might. That's why some names were Baker, some names were Fisher because they're a fisherman, or Taylor because they're in the textile industry, or Miller because they're in the agricultural industry. Names convey that sense of meaning. Corporate companies today, especially with social media, spend millions of dollars to hire consultants to come up with a new logo and name. Your handle on Instagram and Snapchat matter because that's what will attract more people. Why? Because to reinvent yourself means you have to reinvent your name. And that's why even today, names have shaping power and identity. Even sometimes people say, I don't like my name. I've heard someone say that in the past week. I don't like my name. I don't like the way it sounds. I don't, like, I don't think it expresses who I am. That's why when you have a baby, parents will spend all this research and time talking about a name because there's significance that identifies them. And so when Jesus comes, he calls the disciples and he begins to name them. The baseline implication is that your identity, your sense of worth comes from Jesus. He names you. He dictates who you are. He's the one that tells you what you're worth. He's the one that gives you significance. Let's look at the names a little bit, just to give you a glimpse into the disciples. The Lord Jesus had renamed Peter. You know, he said, Simon, now you're going to be Peter. Peter means the rock, which is the foundation of the church. But this is the funny thing. He's also called Simon Peter because it's almost as if Peter has this new identity as a Christian, but he's still struggling with the old. 
Now, Peter would be the first in this list, but he's also the one that denied Jesus. So there's a struggle there, like you and I have. He's Peter, but he struggles and still remembers who he was as Simon. Notice James and John, the sons of Zebedee. James was the first apostle to be martyred. He died for Jesus. In Acts 12, he was martyred, and the Lord took him to himself. His brother John was the last apostle to die, the first and the last. John probably lasted about 30 years longer on earth after his brother died. And before John died, he wrote this great book called Revelation, which we have in the Bible now. Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew actually was Nathaniel. And you know his story in John 1, Jesus personally called Nathaniel to himself. And what does he say about Nathaniel? One of the highest compliments you could get. Nathaniel, he had no deceit in him. There's something remarkable about his character. Then there's Thomas and Matthew. Matthew is the one who wrote the gospel, and he shows his humility here in his character. Because in the other gospels, when Matthew and Thomas are mentioned, Matthew was listed first. But then when Matthew wrote his gospel, he didn't put his name first. He put his name second. He's also the tax collector of the Roman state. He was employed by the government, but he was hated by so many people because just like today, no one likes the IRS and wants to pay their taxes. He's a sinner in the sight of Israel, yet by grace he was made an apostle. And in this list, there's even one as evil as Judas, who later betrays Jesus Christ himself. What an incredibly diverse group of men, because the greatness of the Lord Jesus is shown in the diversity of the people that followed Jesus. This one commentator, William Hendrickson, said this about the group of the 12 and their diversity. He says, and I'm summarizing, included in this little bank was Peter the optimist, but also Thomas the pessimist. That's where we get our phrase, the doubting Thomas. Simon, who was a one-time zealot who wanted to overthrow the government and hated taxes, but Matthew, who voluntarily offered his tax-collecting services and was an employee of the government. By the way, Simon the Zealot, if he was an insurrectionist, and if you have Matthew, who was an employee of the government, you can't have a further divide in political affiliation. Do you see this? It's further, I think, in some ways, in Republican and Democratic, but they find their unity in Jesus. Christ usurps their political affiliation and their political thought ideology. That's what Hendrickson is kind of implying here. He also says there's Peter, John, and Matthew. They became famous. They were destined to become world-renowned because of the letters they wrote in the Bible that lasted forever. But there's also this guy named James. He's not the brother of James. He didn't write James. James the Lesser, who actually, you don't know anything about this guy. He follows Jesus, and then when Jesus goes up to heaven, he goes back into obscurity. So you have people of Different backgrounds and different visions for their life, different occupations and different experiences. People who became well-known through Jesus and people who went back into being unknown. What an incredibly diverse group. You know, reason that, the reason that Jesus identifies this is because he's saying whenever he calls you to himself, he calls you to each other. A diverse group of different backgrounds, different challenges, different socioeconomic statuses, different preferences, different parenting styles, different political ideologies, different passions and values. But he's saying that whenever you're called to Jesus, truly called to Jesus, you're called to one another because the grounding of your unity is Jesus himself that transcends and usurps and shrouds and saturates all the differences. 
And one of the things theologically you have to recognize is that the reason there's so much diversity of people that come together in the church is because Jesus is so beautiful and so deep that the only way you get a glimpse of how diverse and beautiful and complex Jesus is is by looking at the diversity of the church, even as we see in the 12 here. He identifies you, friends. He encapsulates who you are, both individually but also collectively as a church. This leads us to our last point. So Jesus calls the disciples to himself. He names them. And then what does he do? He says, go out and serve me. He sends out the disciples. Now, this is interesting because up until chapter 10, Jesus essentially has been doing ministry by himself. He's like the solo pastor. And at this point, he says, the harvest is plentiful. We need workers. So now he actually builds a team around himself. Even Jesus in his human form recognizes that the kingdom will be ushered in ultimately through him, but it needs people, it needs churches and leaders and servants and disciples to become like Jesus in order to have his vision of his church and the kingdom fulfilled. It's the same thing at New Life Press, friends. You know, they say at every church you have about 10% of the people doing 80% of the work. Now, I did my own calculation about that, so it's a little bit better, but the point is still the same. This vision that we have at New Life Press to impact Orange County to make gospel-centered and missions-minded and compassionate disciples can only fully be realized as you and I, every one of you, uniquely you, uniquely gifted, come to Jesus and you're propelled out to serve Jesus as a collective. Jesus even recognized he can't do this by himself in his human form. That's why he builds his team, he builds his inner circle, and he sends them out. And that's why in verse 1 it says this, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then in verse 5, it says literally, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. So if you look at this, let's consider a couple of things. Now, we said this before. Now, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he trained them. He trained them on the job. That's the first thing. They spent a lot of time with Jesus before Jesus finally sent them out. One thing to consider is that Jesus just doesn't send out novices. You don't have to be experts, but you got to learn how to be with Jesus. He doesn't send out men who are unprepared, unequipped, unfamiliar with who Jesus is in his life and death resurrection. He wants people who spend time with Jesus, who are mature with Jesus, who walk with him, and then he sends them out for the work. These are men who spent day and night with him for months in his presence, learning and teaching from him. These men he sends out into the field because they spent a lot of nights with him. They knew Jesus, they were intimate with him, so he trains them on the job. The most important thing to recognize is that it never talks about the giftedness of the disciples. It talks about how much do these people spend time with Jesus. You need actually both. God gifts you for the right job, but more importantly, he wants to transform your character for the job. Character and godliness will always surpass giftedness, even though you really need both. And that's what Jesus is saying. They spent a lot of time with me. Before he sent them out, they knew who I was. But there's another reason that Jesus sends out the 12 in this way. It's because Jesus knew and chose people who were very unimpressive. Now, honestly, this is something that I struggle with in the sense of learning what does it mean for the church and Christianity today. Now, I'm still struggling with this. Maybe we could dialogue that about this a little bit. Now, Jesus seems to use, as his 12, people who are ordinary, tax collectors who are hated, regular fishermen, people you don't know what their jobs are. 
Now, it's interesting that the church in America seems to sort of drift maybe in the opposite direction, have to have certain degrees, certain connections, be able to have a certain presence and charisma, which is very westernized. And you have to show and demonstrate and evidence a level of fruit in order to prove yourself. Well, I think fruitfulness is important. It shows that you have a level of gift, but there's something that I'm thinking is struggling about with this. But that's where it's in the Bible. He chose the 12. You know why? Because they were ordinary. They lacked credentials. Over and over in the Gospels, we see the official religious leaders who are actually the social lead of the day. What do they always accuse the 12 disciples of being? They're saying, your disciples are ignorant and they're unlearned men, and they're absolutely right. The 12 disciples, they weren't scholars. They didn't understand theology. They didn't go to the seminaries of the day. Yeah, they were trained, but they were trained by being with the greatest history teacher and theologian, Jesus. But they lacked earthly credentials. So there's this manifestation in which Jesus says, I'm going to send you out with my authority. Do you know why he does this? I think it's at least this. He's saying, I chose ordinary people who have no worldly credentials, so then they know that they minister on the strength of Jesus, that they go out on the clout and the value who Jesus is for them. Jesus is saying, you go out there and minister on my resume. You go out there on my authority. You go out on my power. You do all this ministry, not to bring glory to your name, but to show that I came into this world to die for the sins of the world. I think that's why Jesus chose ordinary people who lack credentials, because it made them and forced them and reminded them that you live this life not based on your performance and your achievements, but upon the resume and the glory and the authority of who Jesus Christ is for you. And friends, that's maybe the application for you and me too. All true Christian ministry is not done in our power, but in the power of the gospel of Jesus. That's what Peter says in 4, 1 Peter 4.11, whoever serves, serves with the strength that God provides on his resources, by the way you pray, by the way you repent, by the way that you lean on one another, by the way you read the Bible. Because real Christian ministry, you think about this, you want to disciple someone so that they love Jesus more? That goes way beyond our personal resources. You want to be a CG leader and have a a place where you can be vulnerable and have community in which you have your own version of the tax collector and the zealot, how is that community ever going to happen? Well, it does because there's this guy named Jesus. It goes way beyond our expertise and our means. We can only be stewarding the grace and the authority of Jesus in his word to show them and to point to them who Jesus is and show them in our lives how we depend upon Christ in the everyday moments of our lives. Now, I believe strategy and pragmatics are important. Of course they are. Jesus is strategic. Paul is very strategic. But our best strategizing, our brightest minds, our best plans will never bring us success or fruit in themselves. It has to be prayerfully dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ because it's his grace that accomplishes the goal. It's his purpose and plan, his gospel and the power of God unto salvation. Not our designs and not our strategy in particular affinities and organization. So the lesson for us, friends, is that if you're truly called to Christ and realizing he named you, he identified you, and he sends you out, and I pray that every one of you would view yourself as being sent out, then you recognize you're sent out on the credentials and the authority of who Jesus is for you, the perfect life, the perfect man who died the perfect death. And it changes and transforms you. We didn't spend much time on this. It was purposeful, but in verses 5 through 15, you can see they're changed. It says when you go out, in verses 9 to 10, 
Don't acquire gold or silver, no copper for your belts, don't bring too much clothes. So at least it speaks and says, you're transformed, and now you go out in life not guided by money or materialism. He says, go out, don't ask for money, serve them out of the power and in the joy of Jesus Christ. Don't take too much stuff. It transforms how you use your stuff through money materialism. And in verse 8, it says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. We're not exactly supposed to do that because, by the way, it's interesting when Jesus comes in Matthew 28, sends out the Great Commission, he doesn't say that very thing to raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse lepers. That's a special time just for the apostles. No longer you and I are called to do that. That's why in the Great Commission, it doesn't say that. The Great Commission says just disciple them. But the point is this. The principle of verse 8 is this. Help people. Heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So it changes the way you use things, and it changes the way you view people. Now, because before you meet Jesus, we oftentimes use God and people to get things. But now in the gospel, it flips that upside down and says, now you use things to love God and people. That's exactly what happens. So if you're called to Jesus and you truly get him, you truly follow him, he'll change and transform you in his life, death, and resurrection to make you think differently Flip your views and values upside down. So no longer are you driven by money and power and materialism, and no longer you just use people as networkers and collaborators and people that you could step on. But now you realize that for the sake of the kingdom, your identity and values in Jesus Christ, and it transforms the way that you use your money and materialism, and it changed your view of how you engage and relate to people, both in this church and with this out. That is the principle, friends. That is the new community of the church of Jesus Christ, the new 12, which you and I in Jesus are considered to be part of this new 12. Not just the 12 tribes of Israel, not just the 12 sons of Jacob, but the new community of Jesus Christ that we have spent time with him, we sit at his feet. Now we've been changed and transformed by him inside out from our hearts to our actions. And now we view and use our stuff differently than we did before. And now we engage people differently than we did before all in the power and the grace of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, friends. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray at this time. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we can look to your word. We ask, Lord, that you bless us uh, continually as you call us to yourself and you create us to be a new people and a new community and you send us out in the power in the vision of your kingdom. I pray for all of us, Lord, that each and every one of us would be able to identify and find our sense of person and essence in Christ and therefore use our service and our gifts that you have given us for the wider kingdom. Thank you, Lord, so much. We pray that you delight in our service to you. We pray that we would grow day by day by your grace into the image of your Son. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.